All right, so we are talking about God for us, and we are itching our way closer to Easter. So the last couple of weeks, we had talked about the transfiguration and about listening to Jesus. And then riding on a donkey, Wade did that lesson about Jesus being this humble king and then going into Gethsemane, wrestling for the will of God and the will of God's movement. And then last week, Tim talked about Jesus' arrest. But what does it mean for God to be for us? The story of Jesus, Emmanuel, reaches its climax in the crucifixion. That God meets all of us, all of us in our humanity, all of us in our brokenness, is what it means for God to be for us. That he meets us in the areas where we need and so desperately desire to be met. Jesus comes and participates in our suffering in order to bring about our redemption. You see, what we're going to talk about is two stories. Two stories. One that the religious leaders held and one that Jesus was persuaded, and we are persuaded, that God had in mind when he sent his Messiah. With that being said, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful in the name of Jesus. We ask that your spirit would be with us, that as we open up your word, that our hearts and our eyes would just be um, ready to receive what we see in scripture. Lord, I pray that wherever we are on this journey, that we can learn to lean into the story that you set out before us, Father. That if there are any doubts or disappointments that we would use today as a launching point to draw near to you. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for the community of believers that we gather together as worshipers to worship you and to prepare ourselves to be a people to bring your name, honor, and glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. And so every age, their age is no different than ours, has stories we tell ourselves, stories that we grab meaning from. Like in our secular age, there are a ton of stories, a million stories, but probably the most preeminent story is, do you discover meaning or do you create meaning? Those are probably the two predominant stories in our secular age, though there are a lot of other stories. And so during the time of Jesus, they had the same challenge, like, what does it mean for God to send his Messiah? Caiaphas had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to look like, be like, behave like, and obviously Jesus had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 through 63. This is Jesus standing. He was already arrested, getting ready to stand before the Sanhedrin. Let's read in verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could be put to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And so this is Jesus. He's already been arrested. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a religious body that um, comprised of high priests, elders, scholars, Sadducees, Pharisees, so many of the different religious leaders at the time. And their main job was not only to settle religious matters, but also governmental affairs. So they had a big job. What they could not do is encroach or approach upon the authority of the Roman um, Proconsul, which is Pilate. They couldn't kill anyone. They couldn't do anything like that, but they can decide and get things rolling in that direction. And so this body had no power in itself to kill anyone, but it can convict and condemn people. Now, as you're reading this, hopefully you're able to pick up on these are religious leaders. Think of the most pious and most spiritual people you could think of coming together and looking for false evidence against someone. As Matthew paints this picture, he's like, these guys are looking for false evidence. They are looking to put Jesus in prison. Imagine that. What, what would have to be going through the minds of anyone, especially religious people, people who are pious, people who, generally speaking, want to honor God, to participate in a kangaroo trial, which is what this is. You see, I think what was going on, these religious leaders probably already decided that Jesus was not worth following because he went against their norms. He didn't consult with any of them, and he didn't even follow the anticipated patterns of what a Messiah was going to be. There are, there are things called politics. Are you guys familiar with the word politics? Come on. Everyone in here probably heard about it. If you haven't, praise God, you have been cleaned. Um, but there are temple politics, there are life politics. And so what's going on here is Jesus is not operating the way they anticipate. You see, if you were a real bona fide Messiah, what would you do? Well, let's use modern politics to speak to what real bona fide candidates need to do. If I am in the Democratic Party and I want to be a senator of this state, what sort of connection do I need to make initially? It's called President Obama. I got to get on a place where he can endorse me. If I am a Republican candidate and I want to be a senator in this state, I need to have a connection with Donald Trump. I need him to endorse me. I need him to say, this is a guy I am for. He is about the agenda that I was doing when I was a president. And so when Jesus says he's a messianic figure and he does not approach Pilate, that's already strike one, two, and three. He's like... I mean, not Pilate, Caiaphas. He's like, I am the high priest. Like, how are you going to be the Messiah when you and I are not even on the same page? Like, who are you? Like, who do you think you are? You're starting a movement without first consulting me, the high priest. And then Jesus went around doing the work of the temple outside of the temple. Jesus was healing people, forgiving people. I'm almost certain Caiaphas was completely aware that this was happening. And so by the time Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he's like, I already know who this is. This is not the guy we're waiting for. This is not any leader we could work with. This is not any leader we could partner with to overthrow Rome. And so we need to find a way to put him away. The lesser of two evils, if you will. So Jesus becomes a problem for these religious leaders. 
He is galvanizing people. And all I think the religious leaders probably could see is this is the wrong sort of leader. This is the wrong sort of leader. We just saw in the arrest narrative, he had no weapons. His crew already ran. It's already looking really bad. And you're like, this is your leader? This is the one you're supposed to follow? So as far as they were concerned, Jesus was turning people away from God. And so the, the religious leaders created a Messiah in their image. But they were missing the point. They weren't self-examining. I just think about this sitting here like if you consciously know you're lying on someone or you're consciously knowing you're seeking to be dishonest to people about someone. You know, this whole, this whole situation is insane. So usually in the Sanhedrin or any court, honestly, someone comes and says, hey, this is what's going on. You cross-examine the person. You're like, oh, where did you get this facts from? Where did you get this? You see none of that. And usually if enough witnesses are false, you cancel and throw the court out altogether. But that isn't what happens here. That isn't what took place here. What they're looking for is to accuse Jesus. So what were they looking for? How many of you are familiar with a guy named Simon Barkioba? Wikipedia is your friend. Look that dude's name up. It would have been on the screen, but I don't have the slide, so it's okay. You'll look it up. Simon Barkioba was about maybe 60 years after Jesus, and he became a messianic figure. He was intent on setting Israel free, on establishing Israel as a nation, and the, a leading religious leader at the time, Rabbi Akiva, said Simon is the Jewish Messiah. Simon is the right kind of guy. Simon and Rabbi Akiva knew each other. They worked together. And for about three years, he fought to establish Israel as an independent state. That was what they were looking for. That is someone who Simon, I mean, who Caiaphas probably would have partnered with. But Jesus is not that. Jesus sat in silence. The whole time they're accusing him. He's sitting in silence. He says nothing. You know, that's completely and utterly different when you look at the earlier chapters when he's in the temple courts debating these guys, having these conversations. Here in this moment, Jesus chooses silence. I can imagine John and Peter looking out and saying, why is he silent? The women who are close by, why is he silent? Why is he not saying, you're lying on me? There are some of you in here who no one can lie on you even for a second. You're going to say something. Uh-uh. You know, you, you know, if you've ever been in a disagreement, we have a couple of friends that when you're talking to them and they don't agree with you, they're already shaking their head no. And so imagine those people sitting there and, and they're being lied on. They're just shaking their head no. And they're like, are you, do you have something to say? You're like, absolutely. We know those people who would push back in that way. But that's not what happens here. Jesus remains silent. This was a dramatic moment right here for everyone to understand. This is something for even the apostles to understand. Something so many years later for us to understand. That Jesus' silence came from a deep trust in who God was. A deep trust in what his ministry was trying to accomplish. You see, Peter did the complete opposite. Peter spoke. He's like, I don't know the man. Leave me alone, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus in this moment, he's completely silent. You see, as Jesus remained silent, the religious leaders' hearts got harder and they had to call on an oath. They had to say, say this in the name of the living God. A quote from Richard Foster. He says, silence is one of the deepest 
disciplines of the spirit because it puts the stopper on all of our self-justification. Jesus was silent because he felt no compulsion to justify himself. He was secure in his innocence and he entrusted himself to God. Practicing silence, we entrust ourselves to God. We stop using our words to defend ourselves and we start to say, God, you would justify the situation. Now, there are times where we need to use our words, so I'm not encouraging this full-fledged never say something. But there are times when we know we're honoring God and our silence is our biggest testimony. And Jesus will be vindicated later through the resurrection. Let's go to Matthew. We're still in Matthew, but let's go to verse 64. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, you have said so. That's Jesus' way of saying yes, but not in the way you mean. Like, sure, if you, when you're accusing me of being the Son of God, I don't think I'm talking about the same thing as you, but yes, that title somewhat fits. And Jesus, if you, if, if you didn't notice, he quotes a scripture here. He actually puts together Daniel and he puts together the Psalms. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. You see, when he quotes Daniel, this is supposed to activate something in the, the imaginations of the readers and of us as well. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. And his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The courts were seated. The books were open. Then I continued to watch because the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let's go to Psalm, chapter, well, Psalm not chapter, the 110th Psalm verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. Give you a moment to get there. It's kind of in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 110, verse 1. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, he activates these two passages. What are these passages communicating? First and foremost, you have four nations. All of them are beasts. Beasts are not humans. 
And so there is a man that shows up who comes and sits next to the Ancients of Days, which is God, and it is a human. So you have the empire of Babylon as a beast, then you have Persia as a beast, then you have Greece as a beast, and then you have Rome as a beast. And these beasts, when you think about these empires, they, they're empires of violence and oppression. They, they persecute people. And then there is a fifth nation that shows up, which is a person. And that is symbolic of Israel. Israel were supposed to be people as a whole, like show the world what people are supposed to be like. Now, we know from reading the Old Testament, those of us who haven't, a spoiler alert, Israel failed in their vocation as people. But this is a promise from Daniel that there will be a people, a nation who would be people to the rest of the world. And that nation will be given authority and power. Jesus becomes the representation of that nation. Jesus takes on the title son of man because he's like, what Israel was supposed to be people, I am now going to become. And so when you say I am the son of God, I am this guy who is sitting at the right hand of the father. I am this person who now represents Israel to the world. It's so similar to the Olympics. For many of you who are into Olympics, when your country, I, is involved we all root for them like whenever america's in something i'm rooting for the guy like what's the guy who did all the swimming michael phelps i'm not into swimming not even a little bit there's nothing about swimming that does it for me but once i found out he won one gold medal i was rooting for him i'm like winning oh man we're winning we are winning i did no training we are winning i identified you know when we think about sports I am a Miami Heat fan, and so when we're doing well, I'm like, we're winning, we're doing great, I'm partying, and when we lose, I feel it. Jesus is becoming an embodiment here of Israel, the son of man that Daniel is talking about for the people. In South Florida, one of my favorite places to go to is um, a juicery bar. I used to go there all the time, every time before I would go on campus. And the owner was one of those owners who went out of his way to just be a regular guy. Like he, you wouldn't know he was the owner until you got to know the place. So he would be stocking the shelves sometimes, he'll be behind the register, and he was completely staffed. But he was invested in his business. And so one, one day I'm in the bar, I use Juicery Bar, I would always hang out there, we would talk, shoot the breeze about whatever, and we were hanging out and there, entered a disgruntled individual. They were upset. Their juice didn't taste the way they wanted and they were complaining. They were going on and on and on. And then so one of the people at the front desk was like, hey, can I help you? We need to figure this out. Maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. And they're like, no, she's like, no, I want to talk to management. I'm not trying to talk to any peons. That was the word she used. She's like, I'm not trying to talk to any peons. And I, I look back. And I talked to the, um, the, the guy over the register. I'm like, I don't think you're a peon if my words count for anything. And he felt good about that. That's what Christians do. We build people up. <clears throat> so I didn't think he was a peon. But anyhow, then Shmu, that's his name, Jewish friend. He comes. He's not the manager. He's not even the owner. The owner is right there. He comes. He, and Shmoo's trying to talk to her. And they're trying to calm her down. And she's so livid. She's talking about getting a lawyer. Yes. Come on, juicery bars? You got to understand, if you're not into juicery bars, this is big business here, man. Like, people get in their feelings about that. And so anyhow, there, it's this whole thing coming. And then the owner name is Jesse. 
And so Jesse comes. Jesse doesn't look like the owner. You would have never, if you looked at Jesse, you would say, Jesse, you're not the owner. So Jesse walks up and he's like, how can I help you? And she's like, I said, I don't want to talk to peons. And he's like, good, me too. So how can I help you? And then she said, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to call police. And he's like, okay, at this point, I need to ask you to leave. And she's like, you can't tell me to leave. Who are you? Give me the owner's number. And then he, he takes out his phone and he's like, um, in fact, let me get your number because I'm going to press charges on you for not listening to me. She's like, you're not the owner. You need it. And he's like, I am the owner. And she's like, no, you're not. You're whatever. But the whole situation could have been resolved. The entire situation could have been resolved if she would have known whose presence she was in because she actually did get escorted out by police. Police came and they took her away. Now, she didn't get locked up by God's grace and mercy. But she took her purse, she clutched it, and she walked away. And then, you know, I had to say my last piece as the resident Christian, no one hears peons. You all are great people. <laughs> I'm like, you're all great people. I got nothing but respect for you guys. And I think she's having a bad day. Let's not slander her when we leave, okay? I don't know if they did that part, but I said both of those things. I had to hold it down for Jesus. You see, Jesus standing before Pilate is like the owner I mean, before Caiaphas is like the owner being physically present. So he thinks he's dropping judgment on Jesus. Jesus is dropping judgment on him. He is in this conversation with Caiaphas and like, I'm dropping judgment. You got to understand what, what, what we just read here in Daniel. Daniel, the son of man is going to be killed by this fourth beast. What Jesus is saying here is, Caiaphas, you are a representation of that fourth beast. Which is why he ripped his shirt. Ugh. You know, those guys used to rip their shirts 24-7 in the movies. Can you imagine what it was like for their spouse having to sew them up? Were you upset today? Sew them back up. I can imagine how difficult that might have been. And so Jesus says here, from now on, check it, he didn't even die yet. He says, from now on, you will see me sitting at the right hand of the Father. From now on, I'm going to be in a position of authority. Jesus at this point has already understood, regardless of what's going to come next with the flogging, with further persecution, he's like, I'm already so locked in to getting this done, we might as well enthrone me right now. You see, the courts of heaven announced that the kingdom of the Son of Man would never pass away or be destroyed. It was the hopeful vision that someday human being would ascend from, he from earth to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and be given dominion over the nations. It was in this way that humanity would be liberated from the oppression of the endless parades of beastly empires. So when Jesus quotes this passage, he wants to paint the imagination like, guys, my kingdom is going to be radically different than any kingdom you've ever been a part of. That is a hard lesson for us as followers of Jesus to understand. You see, in his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, and he tells Caiaphas that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, which is another word for God. In other words, the endless age of the reign of Christ had already begun in that moment. Jesus understood that his reign had already began in that moment. Let's keep reading in verse 26, verse 65. The high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. 
Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. Any of you who ever watch Sports Center, Stephen A. Smith always says blasphemy. So if you're into Sports Center, just Google or YouTube Stephen A. Smith blasphemy. He says blasphemy when you say something like Tim Tebow is a top five quarterback. You should just see his face. Oh, blasphemy. Because Tim Tebow, anyone who watches football knows he's not a top five quarterback. He's not a quarterback at all, man. Um, And so when... Caiaphas accuses Jesus of blasphemy. What he's saying is you are speaking about yourself and God in ways no one should speak about themselves and God. He's like, the audacity to think you're the son of man. The audacity to think you can sit at the right hand of the power. The audacity for you to call us beasts. The audacity. Like, who on earth do you think you are? The crowds here this is the religious leaders who have been seeing Jesus' ministry. And even from, from um, one commentator in particular actually thinks there's still regular people here witnessing what's happening as well. But these are definitely the religious leaders who have witnessed Jesus' ministry. And they're like, he's worthy of death. Think about what you, if you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, if you've ever read the Gospel, think about if there's anything in there that's worthy of death. Nothing. Love your enemy. Parables. Uh, be, be the Sermon on the Mount, all of that stuff. Blessed are the poor. You know, you have all those teachings and then just random teachings about God's going to come and do something one day. But they think he's worthy of death. And why do they think they're worthy of, that he's worthy of death? They think he's worthy of death because they understand that his movement is removing them from a seat of authority. If he is who he says he is, they are no longer in control. They are no longer the power structure. You see, Jesus' whole ministry is about shifting everyone's expectations. Before I became a follower of Jesus, I had an expectation of Jesus. I was totally under the impression that Jesus is a tree-hugging, lamb-petting hippie. Why did I think that? Because... That's what TV kind of showed me a little bit, even though I didn't watch too many shows about Jesus. I had a certain expectation. I know for many of my friends, they had an expectation that Jesus was this magic genie. You just rub him on his belly and he grants you whatever your wish is in the name of Jesus. So we had a lot of friends who thought Jesus was a magic genie. There are some of us who think Jesus is our Jesus and he is the Jesus of America. Or he's the Jesus of Ukraine. Or he's the Jesus of Russia. Jesus cannot fit in any of our categories. We need to allow him to stay in his categories. And adjust our expectations to his. And so the crowds are deeply disappointed in who he thinks he is. Because how is Jesus going to win any war? Listen, I I encourage you guys. Reread the Gospel of Matthew again. If you use Jesus' book of Matthew as a strategy for war, you're going to lose every single war. Like, can you imagine showing up to a military meeting in, in the synagogue, or not the synagogue, in the Pentagon, and they're like, hey, so what's our strategy to win this war? Gospel of Matthew. After the first six chapters, you'd be like, so everyone's going to die. Absolutely. 
they wanted a king. They wanted someone who's going to sit at the right hand of the father. They wanted someone who's going to overthrow Rome. And you have this guy, this peacemaker. Even when he needed to be protected, he didn't choose violence. You see, the crowds in the, like the crowds in Jerusalem, we assume God exists to meet our expectations and grant our desires. And when he does not, we conclude he's either a fraud or a liar. What we fail to see is that Jesus loves us too much to meet our expectations. Just as he loved the people of Jerusalem too much to save himself. He endured our anger, our disappointment, our rejection because he refuses to be the savior we want. Love compels him to be the savior we need. You see, we need to understand that when Pilate ripped his shirt for blasphemy, what he was really wrestling with that this Jesus cannot change the world. This Jesus cannot be what we need to be. And I think sometimes we wrestle with the same components of Jesus. Sometimes if we... I think some of us, if we really sat down and read the scriptures, we would fall deeply in love with Jesus and we'd be moved and we'd be inspired. But I think some of us would be on the other end as well. If we really understood who Jesus was and what he was about, we probably would stop this journey right now. But that's not what I signed up for. You know, I I, I think the, the, the word of the day, the scripture of the day that the Bible app gives is awesome. Let's get your scripture of the day on. But the scripture of the day seldomly paints who Jesus really is. They give you all the fired up, rosy scriptures. They never give you the scriptures that really point to who Jesus really is. That takes community and that takes communal reading. In September 19, 2015, this guy named Stephen Davoski wrote an article for the New York Times. And the article was called Googling for God. The idea behind it is he was trying to understand, okay, I want to understand the modern psychology of the, of the people of this age. Like, what do they think when they think of God? And so there was a whole bunch of, um, he, he was able to get a whole bunch of research done, and Google gave him whatever he needed to understand. And so when it comes to God, many people wouldn't share with religious leaders or faith leaders or even family what they think, but they feel comfortable going to Google. We're in that new age. Like most, uh, my, my peer group, you go to Google to find out how to change diapers. You don't ask your parents. Parents be like, I've been changing diapers. You'd be like, Google already solved it before I even had to ask you. Same thing when it comes to God. We go to Google. And so what he found was, here were the number of questions that came up consistently. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God need so much praise? Why does God hate me? Why does God make me unattractive? Why does God make me struggle with my sexual orientation? Why did God make me this race or this culture? What he found was people felt more safe asking Google this question than talking to faith leaders, talking to family. You see, what do these questions lead to? It speaks to something deep here, I think. It speaks to disappointment. These questions speak to disappointment. Like, I can't serve a God who allows people to suffer. I can't serve a God who needs so much praise. I can't serve a God. And so there's a deep disappointment. We expect God to be something, and then we discover that he's not that something at all. Or we expect God to do something, only to realize that God seems preoccupied 
with, his, with other matters. This is what Jerusalem was feeling. This is what Caiaphas was feeling. These are the two stories. Caiaphas anticipated that the Messiah would come and do something amazing for Israel in a very human way. And Jesus has a completely different story. I would put before you, I've been doing, I've been following Jesus for a little over a decade, so not that long, but it feels forever for me. Perhaps the greatest threat to our faith isn't whether or not we doubt God, but it's about being disappointed with God. That's the greatest threat to our faith. I think when people experience disappointment, I have seen people turn away from their covenant like that. Disappointment just has this way of nagging at you, and it steals the power of God. And this is what Caiaphas and crew felt. they like, we were looking for a king. We were looking for a warrior, the son of David. And instead, we have this guy who's a lamb and a peacemaker. Jesus coming, in Jesus' in Jesus coming, God does not intend to meet our expectations. Instead, God intends to meet our needs. And if we don't learn that very quickly then our failed expectations of who we think Jesus is is a recipe for resentment. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus' death. But I wanted to end here because this whole audience here, the whole Sanhedrin here, just missed the point. They missed what God was doing. They missed that God was redeeming an entire people, not just Israel, but the entire world. And what did that lead them to do? to crucify the Messiah, to crucify an innocent man. In this miscarriage of justice, we experience a new hope when Jesus raises from the dead. Next week, we're going to talk about his crucifixion. But what I want us to do right now is have a moment of reflection. Think about the area in which you might be struggling with an expectation of Jesus that he's not meeting that's causing you grief right now. Maybe like, God, I really thought if I did this right thing, you know, you, you probably bargain with God. You know, like if I if I read my Bible for 30 minutes, Lord, are you going to make my kids behave? And you read it for an hour, hoping for a miracle. And then as soon as you were done, your kids threw a banana at somebody. You're like, that's it, man. I'm disappointed. Maybe it's something more, more personal. Maybe you've been on your best behavior and you're doing what you want and I mean doing what God wants you to do and you're like God get me this job and maybe you don't get the job now all of these things we could talk about and we could unpack theologically but I think sometimes these things can lead to disappointments just like the religious leaders here were disappointed so let's think about where we are and, and, and let's reflect on that and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us so we'll, we'll, we'll have a moment of reflection and during the reflection, Irene's going to play this lovely harp. Mm-hmm.